take more risk. Don't be afraid. You have the capability to overcome, to get back up and even do more. Hi, I'm Nell Spinda, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Vinya, and today my guest is Sean Fleming. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nils. Happy to be here. Sean, I'm super excited. been looking forward to our conversation for a while. Before we dig into all things leadership and you and your background, would you share with me and this audience the role that you're in today and the company that you work for? I'm happy to. I'm the VP of Customer Engagement for a company called ZenDrive. We're a driving data behavior analytics company. We're based out in San Francisco. We service the B2B market. We help encourage safer driving. We help insurers make fair offers to drivers based off their driving behavior, and we automate collision detection and notification in order to save lives. We're a mission-oriented company. Our goal is to make the roads safe using data and analytics. Wow. Okay. So how do you go about capturing that kind of data, I guess, inside of everybody's car or some cars, or how does it work? It's not from the car at all. The the, the great thing about ZenDrive, it's all smartphone-based. So we use the data from the smartphone sensors, which today's smartphones have numerous sensors to detect all the necessary pieces of information that we need, and we derive powerful mobility insights from those sensors. Wow. Somebody has to have the ZenDrive app installed on their phone, and then you get access to this incredible information. Who are the type of people that want to know about this and who opt into this? Are this from the insurance companies that they're telling, hey, you should install this app? Or is it built into the insurance company's app that you might have on your phone already? Right. So it's, it's both. For some, it's new insurers who integrate our technology into their existing app. For others, it could be a very popular app that wants to have this driving data kind of safety solution built into it and offer that to market as well. So we work with lots of different partners in that regards to get our solution out there and collect the data. We have probably over 200 billion miles of data collected in our, our platform that's helped us refine our algorithms and, and have the best one of the best training sets in the industry. That is a mind-blowing amount of data when you think about each individual trip you might take in a car. That's absolutely fascinating. Just the, you know, making the roads safer, I think is a wonderful thing. On the insurance side, like I can say firsthand, like if there was some way to get an appropriate rate for the amount that you drive and the safety that you drive, the, the profile of you. I know some insurance companies kind of talk about this, but What's the reality? Are they actually using data to make those decisions or is it just... There's been a paradigm shift, right? And things like COVID 
have really helped pronounce this, right? Because in many countries, people are saying, hey, I haven't, I'm not even driving that much. So I don't want to pay the same amount as insurance as if I, I drive every day. So, you know, can you charge me by the mile? You know, can you charge me by my mileage and my behavior? So there's all kinds of what's called usage-based insurance programs or behavioral-based insurance programs that the insurance industry is looking at implementing. So it's coming on slowly but surely as the technology is maturing. And you guys are leading the way. I love it. I mean, you can make this change and we can actually back up what you're going to, your rates, your premiums, your policies, whatever, with incredible data. That's, the, that's amazing. Absolutely. And the great thing when I, when I liked was this, the collision detection part. Um, I just thought that was a life-saving thing. You hear about these people getting stuck in their car and, and they're in, a, in an accident, they're unconscious, they can't call for help. You know, these are solutions that can detect automatically. You can do a little countdown and say, hey, you know, Niels, Niels, are you okay? If you're not responding in 10 seconds, it's going to go and just blast off calls to all kinds of emergency services. So I thought that was fascinating. It really drove me to the company when I saw the mix of the mobile part of the solution, the artificial intelligence part of the solution. It was just a great company to join. Wow. That, I mean, that's just the many different facets and directions and angles that you guys play, the role that you play in making the road safer and getting everybody home to their families. That's absolutely wonderful. Cool. All right. So super interesting on Zendrive. We'll come back to that in your role today. But I want to go a little bit back in time, take a trip down memory lane. And would you tell us, Sean, how did you get into your very first leadership position? I started off in the consulting industry back when it was Anderson Consulting pre- Pre the Accenture moniker. And the great thing about uh, those consulting firms, they basically train you from leadership from the ground up. You know, you start off with being the individual contributor on a team and you progress to managing a small team. So one of the first things I learned from Accenture is about leadership and how they present, right? And leaders present well and things like that. And when I was being interviewed, I was an electrical engineering major out of the University of Delaware. And a friend of mine told me to check out Anderson Consulting at one of their information sessions. I went on a few of their interviews and they were a very different kind of interviewing style than the traditional engineering, Motorola, IBM type of interviews. And it was interesting and it kept moving me forward. Eventually they brought me out to Philadelphia, which all the rest of my interviews were at the, like, the career center. And then we're here in Philadelphia. They took me out to like this beautiful restaurant. I remember it was called Lebec Finn. And you get to this beautiful building and we go to the top floor and I meet this young partner. And it was a beautiful office, you know, mahogany wood table. It was just gorgeous. We look out the window. It's City Hall right across the street from me with the William Penn statue there in the top. And I was just blown away. And he kind of came with that full force. And he said to me, you know, Sean, how I picked my insurance as my industry sector. I had no idea what he was referring to. <laughs> um, I was 22. I knew nothing. I think I was actually 21. <laughs> he says, I like the cities. You know, he gave me a knowing wink, you know, and I said, oh, okay, sure, sure. I, I figured I should just nod and, and agree. And he said something like the firm would be great to have you. And whatever he said, I was hooked. You know, I love the whole presentation of it. And I just thought, I want to be this man. This is exactly who I want to be. This is exactly what I want to do. I had no idea exactly what they did because every client situation was different, but I knew I wanted to be part of that. And so I quickly moved through Accenture the first couple of years, you know, as an individual contributor. And then 
actually, I left Accenture to go to a similar company, Price Waterhouse, and I became a team lead. It was focusing on a technology called EDI, which is Electronic Data Interchange, and we were part of the big SAP wave. So I had spent time learning, studying, and being like the subject matter expert in this particular part of the SAP technology area. And that's how I got my first team lead role to get EDI implemented for one of our our clients there and had a a small team of people. And I really wanted to be a good leader. I had some great examples from Anderson where my first two managers, one, she, she just taught me so much. She was so smart. I was so impressed. I think she was from Ireland. She was so strong technically. And I was just blown away and I wanted to be sharp like that and, and know the answers. And then my next senior manager, same way, but she was you know, juggling the work-life balance with her family and all of that. And I just thought it was so impressive how she could answer every question. She coached me, she developed me. And I realized that you know leaders always have to be developing their team. And so that's the kind of the, the model I wanted to follow. I wanted to be that person who was always coaching and and developing and helping my team. So when I got to my first gig as a leader, I studied. I mean, Anderson and Price have, have great training programs, but I, you know, Barnes and Noble was my friend. I was probably there <laughs> every night. It wasn't some technology book. It was something on managing teams and, and leadership and, and, and so forth. So Sean, let me unpack a little bit of this. Fascinating story. So as an electrical engineering major in undergrad, and then all of a sudden you end up on the complete opposite end of the spectrum virtually from uh, in the consulting world, right? On the chance thing that your friend said, hey, you should talk to Anderson. Like that was literally the only reason why you took that, took that path and ended up going down and found something that you were really passionate about. Was everybody supportive of this transition? Did you deal with anybody in your family perhaps who has had a little bit of trouble? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. My father, he said... Anderson Consulting, what about all these engineering companies? I actually had a job offer at the local Philadelphia electric company called Pico Energy now. I had a job offer coming in. My father was all set. He's just introducing me as my son, the engineer. From his perspective, the plan had worked, right? You go in engineering and you're going to graduate and work as engineer. I mentioned Anderson and he said, Arthur Anderson? And I said, yeah, they're related. And he said, <laughs> he said, Sean, that's an accounting firm. And he says, well, what are you going to do? And I said something like, make my clients more successful. There you go. Good intuition. Yeah. yeah. He looked at me like I was an idiot. I mean, it was, I can honestly <laughs> say very few times that my father looked at me that way, but that was one of those times he was not for it. But, you know, fast forward a few years later, after IBM acquired the consulting assets of Price Waterhouse. I made his day. His son's at IBM. He doesn't care what you're doing at IBM as long as you're IBM. IBM. That was it. <laughs> that name means an awful lot. <laughs> that name lot. meant and, a lot to him. Oh, that's wonderful. And and there's so many times in my life too that right, when you share news of what you're going to do, and you can be really excited, right? You were passionate about this consulting stuff. And then all of a sudden, the other party's fears get placed right on top of you. And you're like, what? Where did this even come from? It's crazy. All right. So you pushed ahead and went went through with it. And that's that's wonderful. One interesting thing about that story with the partner in Philadelphia at the you know top of the tower and looking out over the over City Hall and everything was just the level of detail that that particular leader and the I guess the 
extent that that particular leader went to, to recruit you. Right. And I imagine they probably brought a lot of people out there, but didn't give offers to a whole lot of people. Like they saved the top floor for just the people they wanted. Was that, was that what actually went down? It was me and another young lady that we were leaving the University of Delaware in the car and they took us for these lunches and meeting people and you meet some seniors, you meet some managers, you meet some directors, and then finally you meet the partner. And he put his hand out and says, I, I hope you consider, I goes, I know you have an offer. I hope you consider coming to the firm. And I'm shaking his hand and I'm like, you had me at hello. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going back down the elevator and I'm getting into the car and the young lady's with me. I was like, we did it. We did it. We did it. And she says, no, you did it. And it sunk in. And I was the only person selected from the University of Delaware that year. Wow. That's powerful. So, you know, from a leadership perspective, what I take away from that is one, the thought and the process and the structure behind how Anderson recruited and then even went the extra mile to get the ones they absolutely 100% wanted to get them to join them. And I think this, you know, we're in the world of the state of the great resignation still. And there is so much that is wrapped up into how you recruit and how you engage and how you build relationships over time and how you close candidates to get them to come to you. It's not just that, hey, we have a great you know, mission and we have a great company and we have all kinds of perks and all kinds of good stuff, right? It's that personal connection that you saw when you were in a position to say, that's who I want to become. I mean, that's one of the most powerful things. You were probably willing to do anything to get there. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was the lowest offer, if I recall correctly, Financially. Interesting. Another fun fact my father reminded me of. <laughs> of course. That one, I imagine, yeah, comes up. No, no, that was the lowest offer that you took. But it just goes to show you how people make, you know, emotional decisions and then rational judgment comes later, right? That was the thing that you felt called to do. And even though it meant a lower starting salary than you could have had other places, it was the right place for you. And it sounded like an incredible environment to grow and foster and develop as a future leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So these types of organizations, the Accentures and PWCs, they've been around for a very, very long period of time. They have, from what I've seen from the outside, I've never worked with them or for them, but what I've seen on the outside and what you've been talking about is a very kind of structured approach to developing people. And they also know that a large amount of those people are not going to make it to partner or anywhere close to partner. They'll hang out for a couple of years, get the name on the resume and then split and you know leverage their expertise to go do something else. Can you share a little bit about the, the whole thought process behind an organization that's been around for probably 100 plus years. When it comes to leadership development, what did they do in particular when you got promoted into that team lead role? Was it simply just emulating what you had seen before with those couple managers who were incredible? Or was it, okay, now you're team lead, you're going to go through this course or this training and this training, this training, and there's a path. Like, what was it actually like? They definitely have a path. You know, it was almost mandatory in terms of the number of continuing education hours that you have to do in the firm. I think it was around at least 40 to 80 hours a year. You know, you go off for all this type of training. What are continuing education hours in the context of that consulting firm? What does yeah, that mean? What that means is for one week or two weeks out of the year, and you go off to the uh, Anderson Training Facility, which is a beautiful facility in St. Charles, Illinois, and you're there in classes from 9 a.m. to about 5 p.m. learning 
the, the best practices of managing and, and leadership from managers all over the world, getting all kinds of different diverse perspectives because you never know what kind of client situation you're going to be in or what country you're going to be in. So you have to learn all these different types of practices and procedures. So one to two weeks out of the year, that yeah. is that is mandatory. That's amazing. I mean, think about in today's world and just a typical B2B SaaS company, somebody says, you have to spend two weeks a year in training. Like you look at them like, what are you talking about? How, how am I supposed to do that? But again, the recipe of organizations who have figured this out is fascinating to see what actually happens on the inside. Yeah, they recognize that it's about human capital, right? We don't have a product. We have people. So the, the thing we do is we're developing the people. You know, everything from how you act at a client site, obviously any technology you need to learn, that's that's a given, but it's all those other things. It's the communication, it's the writing, it's all those kind of pieces there to ultimately groom you to one day become a partner. Because when you become a partner, it's like running your own little company. You have your own PNL, you have your own book of business, right? So is that where you wanted to go? Like you were hook, line, and sinker Absolutely. in the consulting world. Were you partner track like all the way? I was partner track all the way. It was the only thing I thought about. I wanted to become like one of the youngest partners. I, I moved to the New York office, which is like the biggest flagship office outside of maybe London for Price Waterhouse. But it was, you know, that was a track I wanted. And I think it shifted right around the time of the IBM acquisition of those consulting units. And then the whole outsourcing and, and, and remote development changed the world. It changed how we approach projects and, and, and all of that. So all of a sudden, I had to manage a team that was, at first started with managing a team that was in, I think, Philadelphia, and then one in Dallas. And then and they said, Sean, we need you to manage this team. You have to convince the client that this is okay, right? And the client is used to a truckload of consultants coming in and in a big war room or something, you're all set up. And now you have to convince them it's going to be like maybe one or two people on site. Everyone else is away. Same fees. Yeah, same fees. <laughs> same fees. But I promise they're all working for you. <laughs> I remember I, I had to present and, and the, the client uh, looked at the partner and said, really, is this really going to work? And the, the client looked, he said, Sean, will this work? And I said, and I gave him like the top 10 reasons of why this is all going to work. And you know, we've done this many times and all this stuff. I remember the partner being impressed that I, I, I didn't hesitate and I, I jumped in and he became like a, a champion of mine, you know, bringing me on to all of his, his projects from, from that period forward. I remember the first time I had a team of, it was in Calcutta and I stayed up late to memorize all the names on a team. My father was in sales and it was something he always said, like, you know, know, know the first name, know the first name. And so I just memorized all these, at the time, challenging names for me, but I did it. And so the next time we had our first call, it was like 11 p.m. or something, my time, Eastern time. And it, it seemed to make an impression. You know, it, it accomplished what I wanted, that, that kind of connection with each person, what they were doing, what they were working on and so forth. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. 
Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. So what took you out of the consulting world then? You didn't go down the partner track all the way, even though that was the original. I didn't. After the IBM acquisition, it it changed because it's no longer a partner. It's a sales executive. And it may, you know, may have been the same compensation, but it's not the same responsibility, at least in my view at that time. And so I knew I wouldn't, you know, last that long. And a good colleague of mine there was aware of a startup. I just felt, take a chance, take a risk, which is what I always say, you know, I wish I had even done more of that, but take a chance, take a risk. I, I joined that startup. I think I was employee number 26 at the time. And I came in as like their director of professional services. And at a startup, you're wearing multiple hats, right? I kind of did everything except finance and, you know, pure engineering, right? But you did everything. I, I started the first support organization. Eventually, you started a pre-sales organization. So that's where I really, I really fell in love with the startup world. I fell in love with having a product now. So it wasn't all about me anymore and, and my own capacity. I can take all of that and, and put it behind a product. So that was just a, a transformation. And I, I haven't left that world since, right? I've stuck with the, the product side of the house. So the first half, first 10 years or so was all consulting, which gave great foundation, I believe, to me. But then I found my second love. Look, and when you said there, it wasn't all about me, like transitioning from the consulting world where you are the the product in and of itself. And then you work in startup and in other B2B businesses that you've been in, and there's a product. Tell me more about that. It's, it's not about me. And you're building these teams, right? And you're supporting a product. So this is a completely different world. So from a leadership perspective, what you saw inside of the Anderson and then PwC world where so much emphasis on personal and professional development because you were the product. How do you bring that into worlds where it's not necessarily just about you because there is an actual software product on the other side? Yeah, you start off first, at least for me, was about developing people, developing the team and, and all of that. And now I'd always been obviously client facing there, but now it's all around supporting this product that you have and making sure your customers understand that product, right? Now, I had been on the receiving end of it because I had worked with great products like SAP and PeopleSoft and JD Edwards and, and those kinds of things, right? But, but now I was on the, on the inside track, if you will, making sure this solution was the, the right best solution for the customer, make sure it's configured the best way, make sure you understand every little bit about it, right? And because it's a startup, we, it was early days, things were maybe were not as documented as well. So you could really get in there. And it, that was fun for me. I, I, I was fine with ambiguity. I could jump in with that and really define all the, the standards and procedures and the documentation that's needed and, and the use cases and so forth. And even though it was a, it was a product, but it was still malleable, right? And that, which I love that as well, right? As opposed to going to like a hardware company. I, I love software, right? So it's, I could do those kind of things. So the transition worked very well for me. And I was able to kind of build up and grow my team. We started off with maybe two or three people. I eventually had at, at, at our peak, 30 some odd people for, for me there. So it was a, a great time. And then I, 
I kind of moved more and more to the front of house in the sales process and the more the pre-sales process because I was blending my strong technology side with the, the business and the sales side. And I really became that lead in the pre-sale sales engineering aspect of our solutions. Hmm. That's a fascinating, you know, trajectory and transition. And now you're running the the customer engagement side of the house at Zendrive, right? Perfect blend. It sounds like of all your skill sets, and that's the coolest thing ever. When the when the career when comes, it all comes into together, view. yeah. When it all comes together, and you look back and you're like, oh, all those little seemingly random skills I picked up here, 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 all actually were perfectly necessary for what I'm doing right now. So in the consulting world, we talked about how. Anderson had, you know, two weeks mandatory, basically education enabled in a year. I'm curious now, fast forward some years later, right? How do you continue at that level of investment in yourself? And do you ever find yourself getting stale or needing a refresh? Yeah. I mean, for a number of years, I didn't do it, right? I, I joined that startup. I had to learn that piece there. And I was all about learning this product and, and understood the world was transitioning from on-prem to SaaS, there's just so many things that were that were changing, right? But now with my team, for example, when we have a very generous learning and development program and budget, I should say, and I really encourage the team to pursue that. When we do our one-on-ones, I'm always saying, you know, let's focus on this certification or this knowledge here. And I said, look, there's three pillars, right? There's your functional of what you, you know, have to do. There's your technical, because we are a software company, and then there's industry, right? And usually when I hire someone, they're going to have at least one pillar, maybe two. But many times we, we kind of get the industry later. So I just encourage those three pillars now, and I made it a bit more rigor there in that follow-up that, okay, you knocked off the technical, let's hit the industry one, right? And here's the material to, to help you along those paths. And you try to keep things fun and, and learning. I, I started a, a book club with my team to also encourage that on themes of leadership and communication and, and, and management as well to get them thinking. Because I, I think they all have the aptitude to be great leaders in our company or in, or in other companies, right? So I want to continuously develop that as well. Yeah, love it. And you were one of the, in, in the very first cohort of what is now my B2B Leaders Academy program, it was wonderful to spend some time with you and, and getting to know you back then and when we were going through it in the early, early days as, as one of the first, very first people to go through it. And I'm curious, you know, you were at the VP level. You had been through, you know, incredible training from the consulting world. You had been through incredible building of organizations from nothing to 30 plus people inside of startups. You were clearly very experienced and very seasoned. What was going on when you decided to say, hey, you know, Nilsa's making this offer available to join them and go through some leadership coaching and training. Like what was going on where you said, you know what, this is probably maybe something I should spend some time on over the next whatever period we're looking at. I've spent a lot of time doing my own self-education books and audio and, and so forth. One of those startups got acquired by Nokia and Nokia did have great training and so forth as well. But I felt myself getting a little stale and coming back into another new startup, I thought it was good to kind of, you know, there's some new lessons to be learned, right? Different than what we did at the last startup and how we exited and so forth. So what can I learn now coming in? Because that startup, I got in very early. Like I said, I was employee number 26. We spent over 10 years. I grew 
within there, right? Now I'm coming as the VP of customer engagement, you know, with a whole new team I'm inheriting and, and so forth. So it's a different drop-off point. So how can I, you know, help to accelerate any any learning curve that 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 I may have, right? So I I like to cover off my blind spots. And I had heard one of your courses before in customer success. I was impressed with that. And I thought this is the the, the right time and the right person to engage. And I thought the program was wonderful. I'm, I'm, I see it's been evolving <laughs> a lot more. So it's probably even better, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy and probably part of the pioneer cohorts. You were. Yeah, you were part of the very first group. And and that's awesome. And that that feeling of being stale, I think, exists across the board. And if as leaders, if we don't consciously and consistently pay attention to when that point comes, you can get inundated with the day-to-day very, very quickly and pick your head up and it's a year or two down the line. And you look at how much you've really learned versus how much you've actually just done. And it can be completely different ends of the spectrum. So I really like that you, you know, you had an external function happening, like going transitioning from a company you were very early on and grew within to joining an existing one as an executive. And that's a totally different environment. Whether going from one company to the next, it's always going to be different. So what were some of the key things and just, you know, one or two that you experienced during the training program with me that were helpful in your transition now into your new organization with your new team, setting you up for success as you go down? Yeah. A big part was about working with the other leaders, especially marketing and, and product management, because a lot of us were either you know new to the company, certainly new to each other, right? And you're coming in that you don't have this history of building a relationship. You had not been through the fire and the trenches together, right? You're just being thrust in right now. So I thought the points that you talked about there, and not just your, your your programming, your book, and so forth, those are key takeaways for me that I could kind of execute to connect and and make sure you have some allies there, right? So that was very important at a new company and, and new leadership team and, and so forth. Yeah, that sets the stage at the and when you're new to the organization. But I don't think it stops when you're not new. And all of a sudden, you know, there's always somebody else, another leader to either connect with, network with, help support, help them get to where they want to go. But in order to do that, you got to know what it is they're working towards, right? And there's a never-ending list of things to be able to talk about from the value perspective that you and your team deliver over time so that everybody else knows what you do. And for everybody listening, this is the key element of pillar number three of my leadership framework, leading with communication. And a key part is, you know, marketing your leadership. Because, Sean, will you agree with me that doing the job as a leader is not enough? Nope. Nope. <laughs> you have to market your leadership. You have to market yourself. You have to share it. That's right. Broadcast That's right. it. Absolutely. <laughs> In a very meaningful and tactical way. It's not bragging and going out there and I did this, I did this, but it is a message that needs to be taken to the broader leadership team, whatever level that you're at. Manager, director, VP, doesn't matter. It still has to be done. Yeah. And I think you can also inquire because then when, you, when, when other leaders see, oh, I, I want to know you know, what, what you're achieving, your your objectives, your OKRs, your MBOs, whatever. You know, I, I want to hear what you're saying. So it's, it's reciprocal. 
Yeah, that's right. hundred percent. And if anybody listening wants to get a little bit more insight into what Sean's talking about here, you can grab a free digital copy of my best-selling book, 30 Day Leadership Playbook, Your Guide to Becoming the Leader You Have Always Wanted to Be by going to 330dayleadership.com forward slash book and check out pillar number three, Leading with Communication, a whole bunch of fun tools and examples and exercises and things to follow in there. So go ahead and check that out. All right, Sean. Coming up here on the last question, let's say that you could rewind the clock and go back in time and sit down with your younger self, perhaps maybe right before, right around that uh, pivotal interview in Philadelphia where you got to join the firm. And the difference is, you know everything that you know today. You know, well, the great stuff that happened in the consulting world, you know what happens in the startup world, what it's like to go from an individual contributor to manager to director to VP and then join different organizations as a VP. What advice would you share with your younger self? I would say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of failure. I I think when I was younger, I just, I always wanted to achieve. I I did not want to fall back. And I was afraid of failure. I, I, I was afraid of it. I would just try to say, Take more risk. Don't be afraid. You have the capability to overcome, to get back up, and even do more. I always felt it was all, you know, so much on my own, just trying to push, 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 push. And if I if I mess up, I'm gonna mess up my whole life, right? So I couldn't take, you know, that chance and that pressure, so to speak. And I would just try to say, don't be afraid. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And I mean, so many times in leadership. We can be afraid as we're dealing with other people's lives and other people's well-being and all that stuff. But it is incredibly important on the other side to take risks because you never know what is going to really hit and what's really going to support the team and what's really going to drive it forward until you take that risk and put it out there. Awesome advice. Wonderful. All right, Sean. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Wonderful to hear about all your incredible journey from the consulting world and what's like inside of an organization. It's been around for a long, long time and how they actually think about developing leadership. I think there's a lot of points that I will certainly take away and this audience will take away on how to think about structuring that leadership development from a consistency perspective when it's still a large part all about people, even if you have a product inside your organization, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's all about the people. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So I can't wait to hear about all the incredible things that you and the Zen Drive team are doing. Thanks so much for spending time with me and take care and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Niels. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to B2BLeadersAcademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.